So this morning, as I was standing up here with the band getting things ready, uh, Yogi Fouts came meandering in and kind of snuck her way up here. And she handed me this and said, hey, I found this this week um, as I was going through some old curriculum stuff. And I thought you might want to perform this this morning. And so I was going to have Montica do it, but she had to go into the nursery. But I have here the, the Esther rap. The Esther rap. And I don't have anyone to beatbox, so we're not going to do it today. But it is here. Uh, it says, King Xerxes had a party one night. He invited the soldiers who'd fought a good fight. They ate, they drank till they had enough. Then the king said, look, my queen is hot stuff. I'm not making this up. It is in the paper. This is published by Group Publishing, in case anyone's wondering. He called for Queen Vashti for all to see what a beautiful woman his wife could be. Questionable wording there for old Xerxes. But the king didn't know the queen said that night, I am not going out, and turned out the light. When the king found out, he started to rage. He couldn't calm down, so he called for his page. Tell the queen I think her actions are bad. She's out of here. Because she made me mad. It's just not cool to have no queen. So a contest was ordered that was quite the scene. Lots of girls came to apply for the job. A palace full of girls. An excitable mob. Too tall, too small, too many, said the king. I need to find one perfect for my ring. Then he found the girl to make his dreams come true. Her skin was so pure, her eyes the darkest hue. Her face, her figure were so fine. King Xerxes heard wedding bells chime. Mordecai's cousin Esther was her name, an orphan girl who was destined for fame. Let's go to the Lord in prayer after that fine work of dramatic poetry. Father God, we thank you so much for your goodness and your grace to us. We thank you for the truth of your word. We thank you for the chance that we have to gather together and to celebrate the, the different things that happen in our lives. Lord, we thank you for the reminder that through every phase of life, through whatever we face, we can know and trust that you, God, are there with us, that you go before us, and Lord, that you will continue to provide in, in your time according to your purpose, according to your promise. So God, speak to us this morning as we look at your word and conclude the book of Esther. We pray that we would see the truth of who you are and how you'd have us to live in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we began our series on Esther eight weeks ago with an overarching question. There were actually three questions that we considered as we went through the messages, but, but it all was, was intended to point us back to one overarching, overriding question uh, for the book of Esther and also for our lives. And that question, conveniently enough, is the subtitle for the series that we've done on Esther. And that question is this, where is God? Where is God? And, and it's a question that if, if we're honest and if we think back, each of us at some point either has asked that question about our lives or we will ask it in the future. Where, where is God when massive tragedy strikes in our world? You know, it's interesting that, that, to me that we call things like hurricanes and earthquakes and tornadoes when they rip through cities and they destroy homes and they, there's loss of life and property. You, you know what the insurance company refers to those things as? Acts of God. 
And then we, we're, we're left in the aftermath of that, and we look back and we see and we ask, we, we either are left thinking, well, God did this to me, or we think, where was God in the midst of this? Where was God in the midst of that tornado that, that, that destroyed my community, that flood that, that, that pushed through Kentucky, that, that hurricane that destroyed so much property and caused loss of life in Florida? Where was God during that destruction? Where is God when unthinkable evil is brought about by the hands of humanity in the world? Where, where is God? Where was God when the last school shooting happened? Where was God? Where, where was God when, when the last war began over some trivial thing between governments? Where was God? Where was God when the innocents were losing their lives in droves over power, money, oil, possessions. Where's God? Where's God in our own lives when, when it seems our lives are coming undone? When an unforeseen struggle comes in and, and maybe it's a, a financial struggle and we just don't know how we're going to make ends meet and, and there's no clear path forward. Where, where's God in that? Where's God when sickness besets us and, and we're dealing with the realities of the fragility of our bodies? Where's God when we have these lingering injuries? Where is God when, when, when whatever struggle it is comes upon us? Where is God in the midst of that? Jewish tradition, Esther is called the book of divine concealment. The book of divine concealment, as if God is hiding in Esther. And it is true, and we've noted this throughout the series, that God is no nowhere explicitly mentioned in the text of Esther. That nowhere does it specifically mention really any God, but for our case, the, the Hebrew God. So does that then mean, because God's name is not mentioned, that God therefore is not present in the book of Esther? Does that mean that in any, because if God is not present in the book of Esther, a book in God's Bible about his people, if God is not there for his people in their history, what does that mean for us as adopted sons and daughters brought in to the family of God? It's a little disconcerting on the face of it. But I hope you've seen, as we've made this journey over the last several weeks through Esther, that, that one need not look very far, particularly in this book, to see the fingerprints of God. To, to see the reliance of Esther and Mordecai on God through their, their fasting and, and through their, their taking time to wait before she approaches the king over and over again, we see the work of God as, as the, the evil plans of, of Haman and others are turned on their head. Over and over again, we see validation of the truth of God's word as the humble are consistently brought low. Or, or the, the proud are consistently brought low and the humble are consistently honored and lifted up. See, the hope in the book of Esther is this, that even when we cannot see the divine providential hand stirring and moving in our lives, God is still there. God is still working. And even in the unthinkable darknesses that we face and encounter in this sinful world, God still has a plan and a purpose and is still working to bring about 
his promises for us and for his glory. We see that coming to conclusion and coming to a head here as we conclude the book of Esther in Esther chapter 9 and 10. If you have a Bible, turn with me to the last chapter of Esther, Esther 9. I believe we'll have it on the screen as well. Esther 9 says this, And on the thirteenth day of the twelfth month, the month of Adar, the edict commanded by the king was carried out. On this day, the enemies of the Jews had hoped to overpower them, but now the tables were turned. And the Jews had the upper hand over those who hated them. The Jews assembled in their cities and all the provinces of King Xerxes to attack those determined to destroy them. No one could stand against them, because the people of all the other nationalities were afraid of them. And all the nobles of the provinces, the satraps, the governors, and the king's administrators helped the Jews because fear of Mordecai had seized them. Mordecai was prominent in the palace. His reputation spread throughout the provinces, and he became more and more powerful. And the Jews struck down all their enemies with the sword, killing and destroying them. And they did what they pleased to those who hated them in the citadel of Susa. The Jews killed and destroyed 500 men. They also killed Parshandatha, Dauphin, Aspatha, Paratha, Adalia, Aradatha, Parmashta, Arisai, Aridai, and Vasatha. You guys can applaud for that. that. I'm kind of impressed that I just got through all those names. Thank you. Thank you. I failed to practice that before I got here today. The ten sons of Haman son of Hamadatha, the enemy of the Jews. But they did not lay their hands on the plunder. The number of those killed in the citadel of Susa was reported to the king that same day. The king said to Queen Esther, the Jews have killed and destroyed 500 men and 10 sons of Haman in the citadel of Susa. What have they done in the rest of the king's provinces? Now what is your petition? It will be given to you. What is your request it will also be granted. If it pleases the king, Esther answered, give the Jews in Susa permission to carry out this day's edict tomorrow also. And let Haman's ten sons be impaled on poles. So the king commanded that this be done. An edict was issued in Susa, and they impaled the ten sons of Haman. The Jews in Susa came together on the 14th day of the month of Adar, and they put to death in Susa 300 men. But they did not lay their hands on the plunder. Meanwhile, the remainder of the Jews who were in the king's provinces also assembled to protect themselves, to get relief from their enemies. They killed 75,000 of them, but they did not lay their hands on the plunder. This happened on the 13th day of the month of Adar, and on the 14th day they rested and made it a day of feasting and joy. The Jews in Susa, however, had assembled on the 13th day and the 14th day, and then on the 15th day they rested and made it a day of feasting and joy. That is why rural Jews, those living in villages, observe the 14th of the month of Adar as a day of joy and feasting, a day of giving presents to each other. And Mordecai recorded these events and he sent letters to all the Jews throughout the provinces of King Xerxes, near and far, to have them celebrate annually on the 14th and 15th days of the month of Adar. As the time when the Jews got relief from their enemies and as the month when their sorrow was turned into joy and their mourning into a day of celebration. And he wrote to them to observe the days 
as days of feasting and joy and giving presents of food to one another and gifts to the poor. So the Jews agreed to continue the celebration they had begun doing, doing what Mordecai had written to them. For Haman, son of Hamadatha, the Agagite, the enemy of all the Jews, had plotted against the Jews to destroy them and had cast the pur, that is the lot, for their ruin and destruction. But when the plot came to the king's attention, he issued a written order that the evil scheme Haman had devised against the Jews should come back onto his own head and that he and his son should be impaled on poles. Therefore, these days were called Purim, for the word pur, because of everything written in this letter and because of what they had seen had happened to them. The Jews took it on themselves to establish the custom that they and their descendants and all who joined them should without fail observe two days every year in the way prescribed, and at that time appointed. These days should be remembered and observed in every generation, by every family, in every province, and in every city. And these days of Purim should never fail to be celebrated by the Jews. Nor should the memory of these days die out among their descendants. So Esther, Queen Esther, daughter of Abihail, along with Mordecai the Jew, wrote with full authority to confirm the second letter concerning Purim. And Mordecai sent letters to all the Jews in 127 provinces of Xerxes' kingdom, words of goodwill and assurance to establish these days of Purim at their designated times as Mordecai the Jew and Queen Esther had decreed for them and as they had established for themselves and their descendants in regard to their times of fasting and lamentation. Esther decree, Esther's decree confirmed these regulations about Purim and it was written down in the records. And King Xerxes imposed a tribute throughout the empire to distant shores and all his acts of power and might together with a full account of the greatness of Mordecai, whom the king had promoted, are, are they not written in the book of the annals of the kings of Media and Persia? Mordecai the Jew was second in rank to King Xerxes, preeminent among the Jews and held in high esteem by his many fellow Jews because he worked for the good of his people and spoke up for the welfare of all the Jews." So we have a lot of words in the passage, but it comes back to a few things. And really, it encapsulates and brings a happy ending to our once upon a time story. Everything turns south pretty quick, but by the time we get to the end here, we see that God has brought about this amazing deliverance for his people and provided the promises that he had made for his people. What's interesting, though, is, is in chapter 9, as you read scholars, there's disagreement about whether or not the whole of chapter 9 actually was a part of the original manuscripts. There, there are many scholars who say because of the way that it plays out and the way that it flows, it doesn't make, a sen- make any sense. No good author would place these things in this order. Because what we have is we have the, the announcement that the battle is won that the Jews are going to win, then we have the description of the battle. It's argued that this is poor literary form, that it ruins the flow. I would argue, however, that it's actually really good theology. It's really good theology, and it's an important reminder for us. The reminder is this, that before the battle's begun, the Lord has already won. Before the battle's begun, the Lord has already won. Before that conflict comes into our lives, God already has a plan of deliverance. Before the struggle sets in, God already knows the path that will lead us through. Before we we face the issues or we even make the mess of our own lives, God understands 
what he is going to do and the avenues he is going to open to lead us through and out the other side. Through his divine providential care. See, the truth is that God always wins. God doesn't lose. What's funny to me about this, though, is that reading these, these, these textbooks, these these commentaries, these thick reference books that most of us would never touch in a library. You open them up, and suddenly in the midst of all of this academic language, you have these massive complaints that you might more likely see on social media after the release of a new movie. I'd like to compare it to the the academic version of complaining about not giving a spoiler alert. That that here in the book of Esther, the author has spoiled his own storyline. Now, a spoiler is, is defined as a, a spoiler alert is defined as a warning that an important detail of the plot development is about to be revealed in a discussion of a review of a film or a book. It's almost like these academics are saying, man, the author could have said, hey, warning, if you want to be surprised at the ending, then go ahead and jump ahead and read from this verse on. But he doesn't. He just jumps, the author jumps right in and gives all the details, gives a brief summary of the battle, then lays it out. Personally, I like a good spoiler. I don't know where you stand on that, but just the other day I jumped online to look up what happens in Guardians of the Galaxy 3. Now, I won't spoil it for you, but for me, I want to know going into it. I want to know, is my favorite character going to die? I want to know, who's going to be the villain? When do they emerge? How is it going to play out? I want to know the general flow of the story. And that's always been the case for me. Now, there's lots of people that would say, that's terrible, you ruined the movie. I don't like stress. Like, if you like anxiety, good for you. You want to go, and I don't understand people that goes, I, I, one time I remember, and this is where it changed for me. I went and watched that Ladder 49 movie. Do you, does anyone remember that? It's a fireman movie, right? And so I'm like, yes, a fireman movie. They're going to save everyone. Well, spoiler alert, the guy dies. And I'm like, this is a terrible movie. Like, who wants to go to a movie and watch the good guy die at the end? Like, is life not bad enough that you need to give me a movie that reminds me how terrible life could be? So I like the spoilers. I actually appreciate this here in Esther where the guy's like, hey, I know that we have two competing decrees, right? That's what's going on in Esther. We've got the decree from Haman where it says you can go into all the provinces and you legally can exterminate any of these people. You can kill their men, you can kill their women, you can kill their children, and you could take their stuff. Giving no recourse for the Jews, right? Like, they go destroy them. They're, they're not like us. They're different. They're not to be tolerated. Go destroy them. The Jews are left without recourse. Well, then in comes, comes Mordecai, and Mordecai rises to power, and Mordecai has to write a new decree. And that new decree says, basically, everything they said in that previous decree, now you can do that to them. If they come to kill you, if they come to take your things, if they come to destroy your life, you may defend yourselves, and in self-defense, you may destroy them. And while you're doing that, if they happen to have any bling on them, you could take it. Their possessions are yours. Now, I tell you that because that's going to be important in the text. Again, while the, the order of sequence may be poor literary form, it may not be the way that authors generally function, again, it is excellent theology. Because it reminds us of a a truth that that isn't implicit. It isn't out there in front of us, but that we need to remember in our hearts as we go through life. That God's got this. 
It, it doesn't feel like it in the midst of it, does it? If we wait till we're in the middle of the struggle, in the middle of the battle, to remember who God is and what God does for his people, a lot of times we've waited too long, haven't we? Because when the struggle sets in, it's hard to see anything but the struggle. That means before it even hits, we need to be reminded early and often that God is a good God. That God cares for his people. That even though it may go dark and it may be difficult to see where God is in the midst of it, we can know that he is there and that his divine providential hand is moving to bring about his purposes and his promises for his people. God will always make good on his promises for us. It got me thinking as I was thinking about this whole idea of spoilers. Is the Bible not a book full of spoilers? Is that not what the Bible is? Is one ginormous spoiler where God says, hey, by the way, before you get to the end, just want to let you know, I always win, I never lose, and you're going to win with me. If your faith is in me, you will ultimately sit with me in glory. I mean, we could spend the rest of the morning looking at other passages that indicate this truth. We could go back, though, to Deuteronomy 20. If we go back to Deuteronomy 20, we see where this promise finds its genesis. God is promising his people as they've come out of Egypt and they are going into the promised land to receive their rest. God tells them this through Moses. When you go to war against your enemies and see horses and chariots and an army greater than yours, do not be afraid of them. Because the Lord your God who brought you up out of Egypt will be with you. And when you are about to go into battle, the priest shall come forward and address the army. He shall say, Hear Israel, today you are going into battle against your enemies. Do not be faint-hearted or afraid. Do not panic or be terrified by them. For the Lord your God is the one who goes with you to fight for you against your enemies and to give you victory. That is a promise. That God, as he is just at the genesis, the beginning of his people Israel, he's brought them out of Egypt and, and he's made the promise to, to um, Jacob and before to Abram and to Isaac, but now God is telling his people and officially putting pen to paper to let them know this is a contractual obligation with you. I will take, take care of you. Whatever comes, whatever enemy confronts you, you don't have to be afraid. You know why? Because I win. I'm going with you and I will bring about victory. We could go and look at 2 Chronicles 20.15. We could look at 1 Samuel 17.47. We could look at Psalm 24.8. We could look at Proverbs 21.31. All of which, in one form or another, say, the battle belongs to the Lord. Points out that our enemies may suit up, we ourselves may suit up, but know that even when we are the ones going into battle, that God is the one that's going to bring about victory. And he will provide for his people. We could go to Romans 8. In Romans 8, verses 31 and 37, it says this. What then shall we say in response to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? And then we jump ahead to 37. In all these things, we are more than conquerors. Or the Greek would be better reversed. Conquerors and more through him who loved us. 
For I am convinced that neither death nor life, nor angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. I mean, think about Revelation. What's funny to me about the Revelation is, as people like to talk about that book as being this terrifying book of these, these horrors that come upon the world. And, and sure, that's true. But you realize that Revelation is not there to make us afraid of what's to come. It's not even about all the details and how it'll play out. You know what the point of Revelation is? It's to be a reminder for you and I that God wins. That God's purposes will come about on this planet. And ultimately, his people and his purposes will find a way. To quote the old southern gospel song by the cathedrals, I believe it is, I've read the back of the book and we win. Unapologetically. That's the spoiler of the Bible. It, it, it spoils or gives us joy because we know that God wins and he brings us with him. While God may seem silent and even absent at times, we can and must trust that his providential hand is moving to bring about his great salvation in, through and for us. If we look at verse 1 of chapter 9. On this day the enemy of the Jews had hoped to overpower them. But now the tables had turned. The tables will turn. God will bring about victory in our lives. And we win because God wins. Before the battle begins, the outcome is decided. Do we trust God? Do we remember his goodness? Do we remember his past faithfulness? And are we willing to follow him through whatever comes in our lives? As we look at the passage and we look at the book of Esther, we, we see God's presence as, as well in the connection to God's past dealings with his people and his people's past failures. And Esther serves as a reminder because it's a redemption of sorts as Esther and Mordecai overcome and undo the failure of King Saul in the past. And it's a reminder for us that past failures should push us to future faithfulness. Past failures should push us to future faithfulness. Now, two themes emerge for us as we look at verses 5 through 19. And even if we go back through the book of Esther, but here as we come to the conclusion, we're brought back to these ideas. And these are the two themes. One, that all of the enemies of the people of God will be dealt with. In the text, we see that all those that choose to raise their hand and to come against God's people, that God takes care of them, that they are killed, they are destroyed. The second theme that we see is mentioned three times in the text that none of the Jews lay hands on any of the plunder. And both of these themes are threads, again, connecting the events of Esther to the hostilities between the Israelites and the Amalekites, between the forces of King Saul and King Agag. And they remind us of Saul's failure to follow through and faithfully do what God had instructed. And where Saul had failed, Esther and Mordecai are faithful. First thing we see is that all of the enemies of God's people are destroyed. 
we can look in verses 6, 12, and 15 of chapter 9. And it tells us in total that 500 and 300, or a net total of 800 people, are killed just in the capital of Susa. Just in the capital complex there, in the capital city of the king. And it tells us that that very day, the king is informed that 500 people had fallen. The 500 enemies of the people of God are taken out. And this is important for us. Because throughout most of the story, King Xerxes is kind of indifferent to anything that happens in his kingdom, isn't he? I mean, Xerxes really is all about throwing the ring and say, hey, if there's a problem, you deal with it. There's an issue. I'm talking to my advisors. Hey, talk to my advisors. They'll take care of it. Xerxes really is of no use. But suddenly here in chapter 9, Xerxes gets word that 500 people in the capital, that, that 500 enemies of the people of God are killed. And Xerxes goes, whoa, 500 people? And inherent in that is a sense of surprise. And Xerxes says, hey, if this happened in the capital, what has happened in the rest of my kingdom? It's almost as if Xerxes is saying, I didn't realize this was that big of a problem. I, I didn't realize that this was really going to be that much of an issue. And it was. Because we can look at verse 16, and we see the result throughout the kingdom. We see that 75,000 are killed throughout the empire. I just did a little bit of research to contextualize that. Did you know that 75,000 people, that constitutes the complete elimination and eradication of the entire populations of Jackson and Jennings County? That's how many people were destroyed. It's like scorched earthing everything from here through North Vernon. It's incredible loss. And it creates a clear contrast to King Saul. Where Saul kept some of his enemies alive because it made him look good. Saul kept some of his enemies alive because it didn't, he, he wanted to have that power and authority. wanted to be able to flex for other empires and other kingmakers. And ultimately his failure cost him his life as we'll see in a moment. But Queen Esther and Mordecai succeed. Anyone that comes and raises their hand against the people of God are eliminated, and the threat is done away with. We see the failure of Saul in 1 Samuel 15, 1 through 3. It says this, Samuel said to Saul, I am the one the Lord sent to anoint you king over his people Israel. So listen now to the message from the Lord. This is what the Lord Almighty says, I will punish the Amalekites for what they did to Israel when they waylaid them as they came up from Egypt. Now go attack the Amalekites and totally destroy all that belongs to them. Do not spare them. Put to death all the men, women, children, and infants, cattle, sheep, camels, and donkeys. I'm not going to get into the moral and ethics of, of war in the ancient world, but the fact is that Saul did not follow through. Now some scholars suggest that Esther's actually in the wrong. And perhaps you yourself, you read this and you look and you see what Esther is doing. And you're like, man, Esther, getting a little vindictive there. Well, why do I say that? Because Esther, the 500 number comes in and King Xerxes is like, man, this is way worse than I thought it was. What do you need? What more needs to be done to deal with this issue? Esther's like, give me one more day. 
Give me one more day to go out and eliminate all of the enemies. Some scholars believe that Esther is asking, uh, as they read it, for chances to pursue enemies. But if we read the text, the text doesn't give us room for that. Esther just recognizes that after this loss, people aren't going to be able or willing to sit back. That possibly there are family members, there are other leaders, they're going to be like, we still have a chance. And so what does Esther ask for? Esther asks, hey, give me one more day, just extend the previous edict. Some scholars say, well, this is morally and ethically questionable. Esther's acting in vindictive ways. Would it not be at least as equally likely that the author is demonstrating Esther's faithfulness to finish the job to protect her people? She doesn't ask, hey, let me go on a hunting party. Let me go chase down. Let me chase them into their homes. Let me follow these people. Let, let me do to them what they were going to do to us. Give them the same fear that we had. That's not what she asked for. She says, King, just extend the edict. Give us one more day to legally protect ourselves and take care of what may come. She's not trying to be the aggressor. She's actively trying to protect as they might come after her. In general, God's people aren't called to be offensive. In truth, we're not even called to be defensive. We're called to protect life. We're called to do what is necessary to stand up for the weak, for the marginalized, and those pushed to the side. We are conduits of God's promised salvation. And I would like to submit to you that that's all Esther is doing. Esther is saying, God... King Xerxes, just give us the chance for deliverance. We're not trying to seek the destruction of anyone else. That's really not the intent. That may be a side effect if they come after us, but ultimately our goal is just to protect our right to exist. But all of the enemies of God are destroyed. Something we've got to notice is the Jews show incredible restraint in this text. Did you notice that three times the author notes that nobody laid a hand on the plunder? Three times in the text he reiterates that fact. No one goes and takes anyone else's stuff. It's not about that. Now, they had the right, though, didn't they? We go back and read the decree, and Mordecai specifically writes it into the edict that you have the right. If they come after you, you can kill them, and you can plunder you can take whatever they have. It is your right. The text tells us, again, three times they don't touch the plunder. This stands again in, in complete contrast to the actions of King Saul and his armies. He failed to obey the Lord in the wake of his victory against King Agag and the Amalekites. He was commanded to take no plunder. But he saved the best of everything and then retroactively claimed... He was just doing it to honor the Lord. Oh, I was going to do a bunch of sacrifices. God, that's why I did this. Our intention to honor the Lord is inconsequential when it comes as a result of unfaithfulness. And I also see, and, and this makes me think of this, that, that having the legal right to do something does not make that action right. Just because our government or some man-made institution says, hey, you can do this. It is okay. This is legal. We've put it in, in legislation. That does not mean that God is okay with it. 
Just because the world says this is your right does not make it righteous. That's an important distinction that that Esther provides for us this morning. It was their legal right. But they recognized that it was not the correct course of action. Are we able to discern those two things? Are we able to discern the difference between this is my right and this is the right thing to do? I mean, is the Bible not a book that is full of instances where we are to set aside our rights in order to make sure that we bring about the right thing? And we see that here in Esther. There's one more thing that brings our attention back to Saul. Reminds us that, that this is about faithfulness in the now, learned from failures of the past. Because we see the punishment of Haman and his sons brought about. And that seems just gratuitously violent and and angry and vindictive. Because it tells us that all ten sons of Haman, much like Haman himself, are impaled. They are publicly displayed and hung on a wall, if you will. Does anybody know what happens to Saul ultimately because of his failure? The scripture tells us that... That we can go back and look in 1 Samuel 31, 8-13. That Saul and his son subsequent and years later after his failure with Agag and the Amalekites. That Saul and his sons lose terribly. And that Saul and his three sons are killed. And that those four men are then hung on a wall. Why is that important for us in this text? Because we see a reversal. Once again, we see the tables turned. Rather than the leaders of God's people hanging because of their failure to follow God's instructions, we now see the leaders of the enemies of the people of God utterly destroyed as God provides for his promises for his people. Perhaps you've heard this statement before. Those who don't learn from history are doomed to repeat it. Past mistakes in our own lives past mistakes in the history of our family or of our culture, of our world, past mistakes of the people of God are meant to serve as examples that challenge us to do and be better. It's not just something for us to lament and say, oh man, I wish we wouldn't have done this. It's not something for us to wallow in our mistakes or our failures or our messes that we have. It's something for us to recognize and road signs that can point us in a better direction for the future. Something that that might empower us and encourage us to be more faithful in our attempts to act as the people of God in appropriate ways in the future. Past failure should push us to future faithfulness. But ultimately this passage comes to, to one final crescendo. The final crescendo and the whole point of the book of Esther for the Jews was this. To establish the festival of Purim. To establish this massive two-day party where they would celebrate God's faithfulness and promise to preserve his people. That's what the book of Esther is calling you and I to do. To remember and rejoice in the faithfulness of God. To remember and rejoice in the faithfulness of God. Following the battle, Queen Esther and Mordecai established a national holiday to recognize and celebrate God's faithfulness. And there's some wording in this that we might tend to pass over. The text tells us that that the people rested. 
The people found rest. That is theological wording. It seems very basic to us. But that is the promise to, from God to his people as they entered the promised land. That I will take you into this promised land where you will rest from your enemies. You will rest from your labors. We see that in Exodus 33 verse 14. The Lord replied, my presence will go with you and I will give you rest. The festival of Purim, the people revel in that rest. They recognize the goodness of God, the glory of God, and what God has done to bring them relief from their struggles. But this isn't a promise that just applied to the people of Israel. We could look back and throughout the whole Old Testament, it's one of the beauty, beautiful things about the Old Testament is over and over again, we see God making good on this promise to bring about rest when we ourselves have riled things up and caused problems. But the truth is that we could go into the New Testament and see the same promise applied to us. What did Jesus himself say in Matthew eleven twenty eight? 28? But come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. We could spend all day in Hebrews where it talks about, hey, God promised that there is a rest still to come. Yes, there have been rests provided in the past, but there is a future rest that is established for God's people that is coming for you. God has won. God continues to win. And God will ultimately win in the future, and he will give you rest from your labors. He will give you rest from your struggles. He will give you rest for your enemies, provided that you stand firm in faith. I love the name of the festival, Purim, because it does have just a little bit of sass and salt. Because if we go back to the beginning, how was it that Haman decided on the date he was going to destroy the Jews? Well, it tells us that he cast the purr. He cast the die, if you will. He wanted to see how the lot would fall, and so he cast the lot, and he determined that the divine hand was telling him that this was the day on which he was to destroy his enemies. But it's called Purim, right? Now, Purim is actually, is actually the plural form of the word. It indicates that there were two die that were cast at the beginning of the story. There were two lots that were cast, not just the lot of Haman. Well, who is the second lot? Well, that's the lot of God himself. And it's a reminder to us that we may do whatever. We may cast the die of our lives. We may, we may cast the lot. We may decide our direction. But ultimately, it is God that will establish the lot that will determine our lot in life. That will determine the direction that our lives go. And if we faithfully follow him, he will bring about deliverance. There will be reason to rejoice we need to remember God's goodness. That is the point of the book of Esther. For the people of God, the whole point of the book was getting to chapters, chapter 9 to remind them, why do we celebrate this every year? Why do we come together? What's the reason for the season? It makes you wonder. Did, did perhaps they get years, generations removed from the original, uh, original establishment of the festival? Where it's, what does it tell them they're supposed to do? Oh, they're supposed to come together. They're supposed to have feasting. They're supposed to sing songs. And they're supposed to have food. And they're supposed to give presents. You got to wonder if like decades later, that like where people complaining, like, man, it's just become too corporate. It's just been, it's too consumeristic. 
I don't want to celebrate Purim anymore. The world has ruined it. They've ruined it. I mean, it's very Christmas-like. Purim, the, the whole point of Esther is to remind them of the reason for the season, if you will. Maybe it's a good thing for us. Maybe the use of the word Esther can remind us that, that Easter is not about Ishtar, this other God, but about the resurrection and the redemption that comes through Jesus Christ. Maybe the reminder about these presents and, and these songs and these festivals, maybe it reminds us that Christmas is not just about presents and singing and food, but about the greatest gift ever given in Jesus Christ. See, even then, back in ancient times, they needed reminders to reorient their attention to the great deliverance of God, to his power and plan. See, because the problem is when we allow, when we allow our holidays, when we remember, our, we allow our festivals, when we, we allow our rituals to become polluted and corrupted, they lose their meaning. And when they lose their meaning, we lose important devices that are designed to remind us of important truths. In this case, they are to remember and rejoice in the faithfulness of God. And is that not what every festival ultimately points for? Was that not the point of Passover? That the destruction would pass over them, but God would be faithful to deliver his people? Is that not the point of the Day of Atonement? When they would take the lamb and they would, they would put the blood on the lamb and, and the one lamb would live and the other lamb would be sacrificed? Is that point not to remind us of the faithfulness of God to, to forgive us of our sins and deliver us from the penalty of our sins? Is the point of Easter, as we look back to the, the death, burial, resurrection of Christ, is it not ultimately to remind us that God made man, took upon him the sins of humanity, and shed his blood to bring about our ultimate lives, both now and in eternity? We could keep going. Brothers and sisters, both early and often, we need to remember and rejoice in the faithfulness of God. That's the reason we come together on Sundays. Yes, it's to be challenged, it's to be encouraged, but it's to remember and rejoice that our God reigns. That our God's power and presence is still in us, working through us and for us. Even in the midst of dark and difficult circumstances, our God is faithful. Perhaps the biggest takeaway from Esther, though, is that God continues to work in the everyday and ordinary. One of the rare things and special things about Esther is there are no miracles. There's never any major supernatural intervention by God per se. And I think it's an important book for us today. Because it de demonstrates that even as, as wicked men and women sit in positions and power and plot and drive things in directions that we don't agree with, we can know that the divine hand of God, the providential hand of God, is still working behind the, surface, behind the scenes. That, that God cannot be stopped. That even through the actions of wicked men and women, God can bring about his purposes. We have reason to remember and rejoice. One commentator notes, divine providence means that God governs all creatures all actions and all circumstances through the normal and ordinary course of human life, with or without the intervention of the supernatural. Perhaps we might conclude by paraphrasing this old hymn. God has been our help in ages past. And he is our hope for years 
to come. God is good for his word. He is faithful and worthy of our faith. And Esther is a call to remember and believe, even and especially when we can't see. That we can remember and rejoice that God works and moves in the everyday and ordinary to bring about his great purposes and his great deliverance in and through us. May we remember, may we rejoice, and may we celebrate the goodness of God in our lives. Father God, I thank you so much for your goodness and your grace to us. I pray that daily you would remind us that you are working even when we don't see it. And that you, in your goodness and grace, will deliver us according to your plan and purpose. Lord, give us faith to follow. Give us strength to be faithful. Lord, we love you and thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.